So welcome to the tipping point, a discussion where we're going to talk a little bit about climate change. What we're going to kick off with are a couple of talks by my colleague here, Dr. Ros Rickaby, and myself, I'm Gideon Henderson. We're both from the Earth Science Department here in Oxford. We both look at climate change, and we both particularly have a slant of using the past to learn something about what happens or what will happen in the future. So without further ado, I'll pass over to Ros Rickaby, who will um, talk first. Okay, welcome. Um, so my slant on climate change and, and the, the drive for my research is really trying to understand the role of these intricate little bugs. So if you were to look at uh, surface seawater from the ocean under a microscope, these are all really about the width of, your, of a hair on your human head, so they're micron size uh, bugs which are flourishing in the ocean today. So if you really looked under a microscope, you would see millions of these cells and they create these intricate shells made up of calcium carbonate and great accumulations of these bugs lead to builds up of rocks which we see even today the white cliffs of Dover indeed are made up of millions and millions of these bugs that were flourishing on the surface of the planet 60 million years ago and they still continue to flourish and these, these creatures, these things are called coccolithophores, and they're really the plants of the ocean. These are the rainforest of the ocean. So they're photosynthesizing in the same way that your trees and the grasses are uh, in your back garden. And they're taking carbon from the atmosphere into their cellular material. And when they die, they drop to the bottom of the ocean and take that carbon with them. And so they're a really intricate player in terms of controlling atmospheric carbon dioxide. And this is really my, my thread of trying to understand how these bugs have changed their productivity in the past and led to natural changes in carbon dioxide. And indeed, how we, they may change in the future and in, even how we may manipulate them in the future to try and find a solution uh, to sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. So... Just as a, a bit of an introduction and to show you why carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is so important and indeed the size of the perturbation that has happened to the natural system already. So this is a record of carbon dioxide which is partly based on the composition of little gas bubbles in ice cores. So um, when ice forms on the poles of the planet, you have snow raining down and as that snow gradually compacts, it creates bubbles in the same way that you see bubbles in an ice cube in a gin and tonic. So those bubbles of gas actually record for us past atmospheric compositions. And indeed, so our polar ice caps give us a nice record of atmospheric carbon dioxide over the last 10,000 years or so. And you should be able to see that that carbon dioxide level is really pretty constant and hasn't changed very much for the last 10,000 years. If we now look at the more recent timescales, and this is a blow-up of these recent timescales going back to 1800 and with the Industrial Revolution occurring and the increase in the burning of the fossil fuels, we've got this incredible exponential rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide that we can say without a doubt has come from the burning of fossil fuels. So we've had this rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide, and just to give you an idea of the size of the, of the change here, we're looking at a, at a change of a about 100. Now, the units don't matter too much, but it's in terms of ppm. So we've really created this massive perturbation of 100 ppm uh, of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere by the burning of fossil fuels. Now, can we put that in the context of a, of a longer time scale in the past? And indeed, we can. Oh, so, so what are the implications 
of that. So this is just taken, this is an intergovernmental panel on climate change that presents uh, the, the state-of-the-art knowledge about the climate, and this was published in 2007. It's an international collaboration, and this is just showing you the sorts of impacts that we think are occurring uh, in the natural world already. So uh, our best estimate is that global average temperature has risen. This is going from the year 1850 up to the year 2000. We've had a rise in atmospheric uh, uh, temperatures, average temperatures by about one degree C or so. At the same time, we can see that the general trend of sea level is for a rise to occur in sea level, and this uh, most recent part really shows an acceleration in the, in the rise of sea level here. And perhaps uh, something that is really hitting the headlines at the moment is the extent of Ar Arctic sea ice, the sea ice that's existing up in the Arctic. Um, and here we've got a measure of, of northern hemisphere snow cover, which is a bit of a proxy for that. And we can see that the northern hemisphere snow cover is really dropping down uh, in the last 20 or 30 years or so. And this is a key part of the climate system because snow on the poles acts to reflect sunlight and so to actively cool the earth. And as we're reducing that snow cover, we're reducing the reflectivity of the surface of the earth. And that has the potential to speed up the influence of the warming. So these are the sorts of implications of this rise of atmospheric carbon dioxide for our global climate, um, as we're showing here. And in terms of longer timescales, we can look even further in the past by drilling further down using these ice cores from Antarctica. And these give us records now, so I'm afraid time is going to the left to the past, and we've got the modern day uh, uh, indicated by zero here. And in the uh, blue line here, we're looking at the atmospheric carbon dioxide levels over the last 650,000 years or so. And you can see that there's a really natural oscillation with atmospheric carbon dioxide bouncing backwards and forwards between a maximum level and a minimum level on this timescale with a frequency of about 100,000 years or so. If we look to the modern day here, um, before we perturbed the environment, we were at levels of about 300 ppm. And as I've mentioned already, we've gone up by about an additional four, uh, 100 ppm to be at 400 ppm or so at CO2 in the atmosphere. And perhaps the most startling point to make is that um, really this level of atmospheric carbon dioxide, we can say, has not been seen by the Earth for at least the last 650,000 years, and most geologists would say for on the order of millions of years. So this is an exceptional perturbation to the Earth's climate. And a question we could ask is, what is the sort of change that we might expect with a 100 ppm change in atmospheric carbon dioxide? Well, we're quite fortunate in that we can actually look to the past where these cycles, these glacial, interglacial cycles, where we've got these natural cycles in carbon dioxide, are also driving natural, or we're seeing changes in temperature almost parallel with that. So the red line is giving us a record of temperature, and you should be able to see this intricate relationship that is evidenced in these ice cores between carbon dioxide and temperature. And so really, um, this gives us perhaps some of the strongest evidence that carbon dioxide is indeed acting as a greenhouse gas and is, is helping drive, if not feeding back onto driving climate. So when atmospheric carbon dioxide was much lower and temperatures were much lower, 10,000 years ago during what we call the last glacial maximum, how did the world look? 
And this is really looking at the same amount of change in atmospheric carbon dioxide as we've instilled into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. And this is a picture of the world now, uh, looking down on the, on the world with the Arctic here in the center and, and going towards uh, North America here and England, uh, down here with Europe. Um, and you can see this is a, a pretty much a representation of the sort of ice cover that we've got on the planet today. If we go back to the ice age, when we know that atmospheric carbon dioxide was lower by the same amount again, um, we can see that a startlingly different picture of the world. We can reconstruct where the ice sheets were, and we can see indeed that most of North America was covered by an ice sheet. A lot of parts of, of Europe were covered by an ice sheet. You can see England here. Um, we'd have just been peeping out from uh, underneath uh, in, in Oxford here. We'd be peeping out from underneath the ice sheet. And the sort of interesting thing is at the same time, sea level was much lower. So as we grow this ice on the continents, we actually lock that water away into the ice, ice caps and sea level is much lower. And so actually at this time, England wouldn't have had a choice as to whether it was part of Europe or not. We really would have been the same, the same part of, of the continent there. So this is the sort of impact that carbon dioxide can have um, on the climate. So um, can we explain what made carbon dioxide naturally draw down out of the atmosphere? And in order to do that, what this is a, a big drive of our research is to try and understand what made carbon dioxide naturally change in the past and induce these changes in the climate. And one place to look to try and explain that is into the deep ocean, which is a major carbon reservoir uh, on the planet today. So we've got the majority of the carbon that's readily exchangeable with the atmosphere is actually sitting in the deep ocean. And the way it gets down into the deep ocean is via these marine organisms, which I started talking about. So these marine organisms photosynthesize in the surface of the ocean, and I'll just show you a sort of nice picture. So again, just to show you the, the, the bugs that are in the ocean, they're photosynthesizing. This is a bug which has these incredible pseudopodia. It's filled with these symbiotic algae, which are the things that are actually fixing carbon from the environment. They use that carbon and they pull it down into the deep ocean. And so is there a way that, that this, these bugs in the ocean actually were more productive and drew more atmospheric carbon dioxide into the ocean 20,000 years ago? Well, if we look at where these bugs are growing in the ocean, this is a, a satellite image which captures the color of the, of the particular pigments of the bugs, the fact that they use chlorophyll um, to photosynthesize. And we can see that there's these incredibly productive areas of, of bugs in the northern part of the planet, in all of these parts of coastal upwelling off Africa, off South America. We can see some bugs existing in the Southern Ocean, but certainly in terms of the concentrations there, these are quite small by comparison to those in the northern parts of the ocean. And really, the main controlling factor on these bugs is the availability of nutrients in the surface of the ocean. So this is a plot now showing you the amount of nutrients, so nitrate and phosphate, the classical phos uh, fertilizers you'd put on your garden. And what we see is indeed where, where there are no bugs living in these subtropical areas, there are very few nutrients. In the northern part, where we had that large abundance of bugs, there's some nutrients left. But the weird thing is that in the Southern Ocean, where we're seeing these red colors, which are indicative of very high nutrient concentrations, for some reason, 
the bugs are unable to use up all the nutrients that are available to them there. There's this sort of excess of nutrients across the Southern Ocean that, that really is being left behind. And normally, bugs tend to use up everything that's available. They live to the limits of the nutrients that are available. And what we're discovering now is that the limiting factor is actually the availability of iron in the ocean. Now, iron is very insoluble in the ocean, and so iron that comes into the ocean tends to precipitate out very rapidly. And in the northern parts of, of, the, of the world, we've got lots of continents, and continents actually provide dust. Dust is very iron-rich, and it goes into the ocean, it fertilizes the bugs, and they're happy to live there. But in the Southern Ocean, we've got very few continental masses. What you notice is we've really got the tip of America, um, South America coming into the Southern Ocean, but Africa and Australia are really quite a way away from this great expanse of water. And so we're discovering that the phytoplankton in these waters, these little bugs, are really limited by the fact that they have very little iron available to live. I've told you that dust, indeed, is a major source of iron to the ocean, and we have these great dust storms that can be whipped off the continents and provide um, uh, dust and iron for phytoplankton. And the most interesting thing is that in these ice cores, where I've already shown you the records of carbon dioxide going from the modern day into the past, we can also measure the concentrations of dust. And what we discover about this past Earth that was much cooler is that it was much dustier. Here we've got a record of the dust. And so at the same time as we've got carbon dioxide coming down, we can see that that is coincident with a time when we've got a much dustier world. And this makes sense that actually, as you grow ice sheets, you, you are essentially restricting the temperature gradient of, of, the, of the Earth. You're making the Earth have the same tropical temperatures, but those cooler temperatures are coming further south. So you've got a much steeper temperature gradient. And that indeed is what drives faster winds and would whip up more dust from the continents to fertilize the oceans. And so this indeed is, this is what we think is a major part, of perhaps, of fertilizing the glacial ocean, acting to, to produce more um, bugs in the ocean, which then lead on to drawing down atmospheric carbon dioxide. So this is a very helpful thing to try and explain the past, but what about the future? Well. What's actually been done is, we've, as a scientific community, there have been concerted efforts to try out this hypothesis in the modern ocean and to go to these parts of the ocean where we think that iron is limiting and to essentially put iron there and see what happens to the phytoplankton. And there have been a number of different expeditions to these various parts of the ocean in the North Pacific, in the Southern Ocean, where the iron has been added to those surface waters. And opportunistically, this is a, a particular um, example where six weeks later over a particular patch that had had iron added to it, a satellite happened to pass over and it captured this ring of blooming phytoplankton um, that was still growing six weeks after this iron fertilization experiment. And so this really tells us that we can actually manipulate the environment to fertilize phytoplankton. And if we can understand more about how that would feed through the ecosystem, this may well be one possibility for helping us to use phytoplankton to absorb carbon dioxide and take it with them to the deep ocean. 
So that's one potential avenue where the past has given us an idea of a mechanism where phytoplankton have used carbon to bring the carbon dioxide levels lower in the atmosphere and how we may be able to manipulate that in the future. So just one other quick example that we've been actively working on is rather than manipulating the biology of the ocean, is there a way that we can actually manipulate the chemistry of the ocean? And one of the ideas is that if we can make the oceans more basic, so I'm sure you have an idea of acid and alkali and using these things to neutralize one another. And if you get a bit of a tummy ache, you might want to take something like a rennie, which in essence is limestone. You're, you're essentially taking in uh, some bits of chalk, um, calcium carbonate, which is acting to neutralize the acidity of your tummy. And there's an idea that we could potentially add limestone in a way to the ocean to make it more basic and to absorb atmospheric carbon dioxide. And I'll just show that to you, that today we've got, um, I apologize for those who aren't chemists, this is a measure of pH um, going from the acidic uh, side of the pH, lower pH to higher pH. When we dissolve carbon dioxide into the ocean, it creates dissolved aqueous carbon dioxide, it creates bicarbonate, and it creates carbonate. And the relative proportions of those species depend on uh, the pH of the ocean. So at a pH of about 8 today, we've got quite a lot of bicarbonate, we've got a little bit of aqueous CO2, and we've got some carbonate iron here. And if we were to manipulate the pH to go higher on this graph, then what happens is that we come down this green line of atmospheric of, of carbon dioxide. And this is the carbon dioxide that can exchange with the atmosphere. So one possibility is changing the pH of the ocean can act to pull down carbon dioxide um, uh, from the atmosphere. Again, can we find a case scenario where this has happened in the past? If we go back to my, my favorite ocean, the glacial ocean 10,000 years ago, um, in the modern day, we've got limestones which are accumulating on the shelves in these wonderful tropical reefs that we have in our modern ocean. But we've also, as I've mentioned many times, got our bugs which are using up uh, 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 limestone and making limestone and, and pulling it down into the deep ocean. And generally, the amount of, of really sort of, it really, the, the amount of limestone that comes into the oceans gets balanced by the amount of limestone that's going out of the oceans. So when we go to glacial times, as we drop the level of, sea, of the sea, we end up with no room. There's, there's, there were really very few coral reefs existing 10,000 years ago because the sea level was so much lower and it didn't really allow any rooms for these nice shelf areas for coral reefs to exist. So the effect of that is to put all of that limestone really into the ocean and the addition of that limestone likely makes the ocean more basic and again plays into explaining this drawdown of carbon dioxide 10,000 years ago. And apologies for the squiggles, but this essentially just tells us, this is some, some data that I've got recently that's really telling us that the ocean probably was more basic during the glacial time. And indeed, we see this in records of, of this deep calcium carbonate where we see more calcium carbonate accumulating at depth. So the, the, uh, an additional benefit then is of, of a way of, of manipulating the environment, of adding limestone somehow to the ocean to, to create it more basic, to pull down atmospheric carbon dioxide, 
is that it also would have the effect of neutralizing the fact that our, our oceans are becoming more acidic as we're elevating carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So carbon dioxide is dissolving in the oceans and it's creating a more acidic environment and our little bugs are really not enjoying that. They're finding it harder. These are experiments where these things were grown in high CO2 environments and they really created quite weird morphologies um, in these coccolithophores and also in algae which are responsible for precipitating calcium carbonate in corals. You can see that these uh, uh, algae on the left are almost quite white whilst these on the right which were grown in high CO2 environments are unable to precipitate their calcium carbonate. So we really have to address this additional challenge that the oceans are becoming more acidic as we're essentially pushing CO2 into the atmosphere without the natural buffering or faster than the, the Earth can buffer that system. So my little message, I think, is that bugs, bugs can help and they might help us avoid a tipping point. Um, we know that the climate change is happening. We've got tools to be able to look to the past to try and understand how the Earth has naturally absorbed carbon dioxide into the ocean. And the real question is, can we actually harness those techniques to be able to help us in the future to, to be able to sequester carbon from the atmosphere? So I think with that, I will pass over to my esteemed colleague, Gideon, to, to take us on another climate story. Oh. Thanks very much, Roz. And both Roz and I will take questions after our, the, our two talks. So I'm um, going to pretty much carry on with the last bullet point that Roz showed, and that is to carry on talking about the idea that we can use the past to learn something about the future and help us make predictions about future climate. So let's start off with a view of what the future will hold. And like Roz, I'm going to start with an image from the IPCC report last year. And this shows projections of what's going to happen to mean annual temperature around the globe as you go into the future. The different colours on here represent different emission scenarios, different amounts of carbon burned by mankind. And for each one of those emission scenarios, you can see that our range of uncertainty is actually quite small. Look at the, the range of red uncertainty here. So we have a really pretty high degree of confidence about what will happen in the future according to what we do now and in the next decade or so. Now, we have that level of confidence because the physics that's going on here is actually really very simple. The average global temperature is controlled, really, only by two things. If you have a certain amount of sunlight, the two things you can do to change the annual temperature are either change how reflective the surface of the planet is or change how much heat you trap in the atmosphere. And if you change one of those, you get a resulting change in annual, tem annual mean temperature. And we are changing it. We're putting a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, trapping heat in the atmosphere. And just as we expect, we see a change now. And we can predict with confidence what the change will be in the future. Now, so this is really relying on sort of GCSE level physics. And it's stuff that we've been able to predict. Our predictions of how much it'll warm for a given carbon dioxide loading have stayed pretty much the same for decades now. However, if you look at a graph like this, it's not really telling you what you want to know. When you got up this morning and chose what clothes to wear, you didn't think, I wonder what the mean annual temperature is around the globe. You wanted to know what's happening to the temperature in my region. What's happening seasonally? Is it winter or summer? And what's happening to the rainfall, not just the temperature, but other aspects of the precipitation, other aspects of the climate system as well. Now, those are areas which are much more difficult for us to predict than mean annual temperature. 
to predict things like seasonality, regional climate, and rainfall, we have to take into account the many complicated feedbacks that operate in the climate system, both physical, chemical, and biological. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you two examples today of our own work here in Oxford that are trying to nail down our understanding of those sorts of changes a little more, both of which use the past to explore what will happen in the future, both of which look at regional settings, one of which will tell us about how rainfall might change in the future, and the other one about how our seasonality and the strength of our seasons may change in the future. So let's start off with rainfall. And another IPCC figure to get us going on this this um, shows you the predictions of what will happen to rainfall by the end of the century for the, for the Northern Hemisphere summer, June, July, August. And it's looking at several different models, or a large number of models used for the IPCC report. The stippling pattern on here shows you regions where all of those models, or at least most of those models, agree pretty well about what will happen. So as I'm sure most of your eyes are being drawn to the UK, we have a fairly good degree of confidence here that rainfall in summer months is going to go down as we go into the future by something like 10 or 20%. Probably quite difficult to believe after the summer we've just had, but that is what the predictions are, are, are being made, and they are with a reasonable degree of confidence. The um, coloured areas on here are areas where the models agree somewhat. The white areas are areas where the models completely disagree. Half of them say it's going to get drier, and half of them say it's going to get wetter. So we just don't have very much of an idea at all about large areas of the world and their rainfall in the future. So let me drag your eyes from the UK down to this region here. And you see here are the, that our predictions are pretty lousy, not very able to work out what will happen there. But this is the area of the Asian monsoon, extremely important climate system. Let's just have a little look at the Asian monsoon here. This um, sort of mini-movie thing shows you the um, rainfall today, month by month, so notice the months ticking by up here, um, for this Asian region. And the red colours represent areas of lots of rainfall. So as we go through the month, February, March, April, as we come into May, June and July, we start to see these red colours over Asia, representing large amounts of rainfall um, in these summer months. Now this monsoon rainfall is driven by the fact that the land heats up faster than the surrounding oceans, and as the land heats, the air over it rises, and that draws in moist air from the, motion, from the oceans to um, cause precipitation. Now, this precipitation is the dominant climate system experienced by about half of the world's population. If you think about countries such as China and India, extremely densely populated areas of the world are impacted by the monsoon. I'm going to focus in on China in particular. Of course, a, a fifth of the world's at least a fifth of the world's population live here, depending on how you do the sums. Um, and it's a, a country which we, I think, intrinsically think of as full of tipping points. It's got um, a very rapid rate of change, a lot of opportunity for political, social, and cultural change in China, some of which may happen really quite abruptly. And that is um, dependent, to some extent, on the environment and on climate. And we can look at the sensitivity of this region to climate change by looking at some satellite imagery. Actually, sorry, on this red box here, I'll show the blow-up of that red box on my next slide. That's um, that area in the middle of China, very densely populated region. There are cities here, such as Wuhan, with a population of 10 million, which is just off the top of this, of this um, image here. And this satellite image of China is comparing um, the surface of the land on two different years. In, in um, the dark blue color that you see here, the surface of the land was wet on both years. So the Yangtze River is this ribbon of blue that stretches through here, wet on both years. The light blue colours on this image, though, are areas that were wet one year, but not the other. So these are floods. 
These light blue areas are huge areas of land that flood when the monsoon is particularly strong in central China, this very densely populated region. Clearly, that has grave societal impacts, and we hear about it on the news intermittently. But what do we know about the history of that monsoon behavior? Here's a, about the longest record of a monsoon that we have anywhere from direct measurements, slightly more than 100 years long. This is actually for India now. And what you see, if you look at the rainfall average compared to the, uh, so the rainfall year by year compared to the average on here, is that there are indeed some unusually wet years and some unusually dry years, but there are a couple of important points on here. One is that there isn't a long-term trend. Monsoon's not getting stronger or weaker noticeably in the last 100 years. And the other thing that you notice is that if you average a few years together, the actual long-term average is, is, is pretty tight. The pink bands on here show you plus or minus 10%. And really, apart from the odd extreme year, if you average up over a few years, it's been within that plus or minus 10% value for the last 100 years. In fact, it's been within that value for longer as well, we think. Now, this means that society has grown up being used to a mean state where the monsoon doesn't actually change that much. And that's why it has an impact when we do get an unusually wet monsoon. It's because society doesn't like it. It's not used to particularly strong monsoons. But what's going to happen to this monsoon system as we go into a globally warmed world? Are we, do we expect to see the same conditions that we see for the last 100 years? Now, going back to this figure that you saw before, remember the, this is a region which we can predict really rather poorly. But such as our predictions are, what they're saying is that it's going to get wetter here by at least 10%, perhaps even more than 20%, taking us well outside that envelope of, in which humans have become used to living in this densely populated region. So if these predictions are correct, we really ought to be preparing for them, but we really want to firm up the, our, our quality of our predictions first of all. So here's where I get into paleoclimate. Our instrumental records aren't long enough to help us. Our models aren't good enough to predict things properly for us now. We, what we want to do is understand more about the monsoon and how it can vary in order to improve our predictability. Now, I'm going to turn here to archives from caves. These things, these stalactites that you see in this rather nice image, grow over tens or even hundreds of thousands of years. And as they grow, they capture for us information about the environment that they're forming in. And there's an example of one of the ones we're working on down here at the front for those of you who are interested. There's also a piece that's cut in half down here. And you can see how these things grow layer on layer and capture information for us as they go. Here's another example of a stalactite. Uh, this one back in the lab. What we can do in the lab is we can measure along this um, stalactite chemistry, such as the isotopes or the trace metals, and use them to reconstruct the past environment. And we can use the low amounts of natural radiation that you see in all samples to also construct a chronology and date these things very well. So we know that this sample grew over the last 9,000 years, very continuously. And this sample is situated from the middle of China. It's up here. This, this figure is showing you moisture transport. So this is a region of China which is heavily impacted by that monsoon flow. And um, the three sites on here throw, show three different caves where we've worked to reconstruct what's happened to the past of the monsoon. This is what has happened. Um, this is the last 9,000 years, so now instead of looking at a 100-year, which is the limit of our instrumental records, we can look at a 9,000-year record of monsoon strength. This is the thing we're actually measuring, but this is the thing we care about, how much it's rained in the past. Now, pay attention to the green line in particular, which is the sort of smooth record here, and I'll point out a couple of features. It just looks like a wiggly line to start with, but let's first of all put on here a plus or minus 10% envelope. So that's what society's been used to um, more recently, 
And it actually seems that over the last 9,000 years, rainfall has also been reasonably constant inside those bounds um, in central China. Now, this is despite the fact that the world changed quite a lot during the last 10,000 years. So, for instance, at 6,000 years ago, we know that the Sahara was green. It was a savanna. Most of the um, northern hemisphere was relatively warm, slightly warmer than today, 6,000 years ago. And that warmth seems to have driven a slightly stronger monsoon, but not very much stronger, only about 7 or 8% stronger than today. So those climate models that are predicting massive changes of the monsoon of 20% or more as we go into the future look somewhat problematic, probably good news for China and India. This sort of data in general that I'm showing you here, then we can use to test our models. We can run those climate models used to predict the future, and we can see if they can hindcast the past. Can they tell us what was happening 6,000 years ago with accuracy? And if they can, we have more confidence in the way they'll behave in the future. I can point out another couple of features on this sort of curve just quickly. Um, we see the driest um, interval in the uh, Chinese monsoon around about 8,000 years ago in the past. And we know that 8,000 years ago is a period where there was quite abrupt reorganization of ocean circulation in the North Atlantic. And this caused um, dramatic cooling in the North Atlantic region. For anyone who's seen the um, entertaining but fa the completely um, preposterous film, The Day After Tomorrow, this was the scenario they were imagining, is that uh, ocean circulation would uh, change would cause cooling. It, it does. That's the one nugget of truth in that film. Um, but we also now know that that cooling will generate much drier conditions over Asia. And some models are predicting that indeed circulation will slow down in the North Atlantic, perhaps leading to a, a drier Asian monsoon. You can also see how um, there the, are the apparent linkages between climate and civilization collapse. Major civilizations in the Indus Valley collapsed at around about this time here and may well be connected to um, a decrease in rainfall through the monsoon at that stage. So coming back to the figure that I started this rainfall section on, we now um, are starting to get a better handle on what drives the monsoon processes here and so that we can test our model. And by the time of the next IPCC report, when we compare different models with one another, we hope that we'll have significantly more stippling on a graph like this and a better estimate of what's going to happen to rainfall as we go into the future. So let me move to my other example now and talk about another region, one a little bit closer to home, one that's probably familiar to you from your holidays, and one where I'm going to focus in on changes of seasonality through time, what will happen to our seasons in the future. Now, for some bizarre reason, this area's um, got a climate which is described as being Mediterranean. Um, and it's not the only place that's got a Mediterranean climate, but obviously it's the main example. And a Mediterranean climate means that it's got very hot and dry summers, but actually quite cold and wet winters. And if you go back to your Greek resort in December or January, you would find it wet and cold and probably snow on the mountains around about. So this is a region that has very strong seasonality, but it doesn't always have to be like that. If the climate belts were to move northwards, the Mediterranean would experience climate like the Sahara, hot and dry the whole year round. If the climate belts were to move southward, then they'd experience climate much more like ours, more uniform um, conditions through the year. Now, just like China, this is in some ways a societal tipping point. We see a major socioeconomic boundary through the Mediterranean, basically. That boundary's been there for a long time. There were modern humans and Neanderthals living on opposite continents at some times through history. And this is a region where it's very interesting to investigate how climate changed in the past, both from a human evolution point of view and also so we can learn something about what may happen in the future. So here, the archive that we're going to turn to, rather different from the cave archive, 
And this is work that's been done in my group by um, a graduate student called Julie Ferguson, just about to finish her PhD. And um, most of the slides that I'll show you from now on have in some ways been poached from Julie's work. So what Julie's doing is being mean to these things, limpets. So again, familiar from your holidays. And limpets grow quite continuously for several years. You can see that growth if you look at this little um, map here. This map is about the width of a human hair. So we're looking at something that's dramatically blown up. And we're looking at chemical variability inside one of these limpets. Actually looking at the variability of magnesium here. The little stripes that you see here in the limpet represent tidal bands. So as the tide goes up and down every day, the, the limpet responds in its chemistry. And you can see, you can actually count the tidal bands and each one representing half a day of growth in this limpet. If we look at things on a slightly larger scale, though, we can see um, now looking at millimeters of growth from the edge towards the middle of a limpet like this. See quite clear cycles in many aspects of the chemistry. I'm showing you oxygen here. And I'm showing you oxygen isotopes because it tells us pretty directly about the temperature that the limpet grew. So this is basically telling you temperature of seawater for a limpet. And these particular limpets were taken from this place, taken from Gibraltar. And this is a good place to characterize the behavior of the Mediterranean through time. Notice that there are some big sea caves as we go down here, and I'll come back to, to those in a little bit. So this is what's happening to temperature from our measurements around Gibraltar. We're just putting a thermometer in the ocean. We know that temperature changes in the ocean on this sort of um, amplitude through time. And this is what the limpets are telling us it's done. So the limpets are able to, um, but from their, ke their chemical information that they capture, they're able to tell us exactly what's happened to climate. We wouldn't have needed the black line here in order to work out how big the seasons were in Gibraltar from these limpets. Now, of course, that means that now we can throw away our instrumental records. We can go back into the past, and we can reconstruct seasonality for times when we have no instrumental records. Now, the problem there is that if you want to find showers from a beach that are old, it's quite difficult. They get smashed up by the waves, and sea level going up and down, as Ros talked about, um, means that the beaches are at different levels and generally underwater. But in those sea caves that I pointed out before, we have the advantage that they were inhabited by, for at least the last 100,000 years by humans and by Neanderthals. This pile of sediment that you see stacked up here has been excavated by archaeologists, and as they do it, they uncover a large number of patella shells, a large number of limpet shells. And those limpets are basically carried in there for food by the humans, discarded, and then taken by the geochemist back to their lab to make measurements on. So we have, this is a quite unique environment where we can get these long records of seasonality. And I'll just show you a couple of those records here. Um, this is not a linear time scale you'll notice on here, just a few um, random times pointed out. This is the modern, what our seasonality looks like today that I've already shown you. 3,000 years ago, we can see that the seasons were slightly muted compared to today. But if we go back to the cold conditions of the last ice age, what we see is a much bigger range of seasonality here. Summers get colder. Winters get much colder. So we're seeing much harsher conditions in the Mediterranean during winters. And perhaps that explains why Neanderthals were using these caves and hiding in them at least during the winter months. So we can now, again, as we did with the rainfall, take this data and compare our model's ability to predict this with um, what we actually observe. And this is a, a model prediction which is comparing the last ice age temperatures with today's temperatures. And on the left, we're looking at summer. On the right, at winter. So if we home in on Gibraltar around about here, um, 
in both the summer and the winter here, these models are suggesting that they should be cooling by about three and a half degrees. They're getting, the models are getting it right for the summer, they're getting it hopelessly wrong for the winter. And this new evidence that we're collecting in Gibraltar and other groups are collecting elsewhere are starting to point out where the models are strong and where they're weak and enabling us to improve the, mod the models, constantly making them better for regional prediction and for predictions of seasonality. So to wrap things up a little bit, what I've been talking to you about and showing you with these two examples are past clues to the future. What I've hopefully um, convinced you of is that natural archives like cave deposits or limpets enable us to learn something about how climate behaved and the conditions that existed in, in times that we have no direct experience of. And that's pretty useful because obviously we have no direct experience of the conditions that we're going into now either in a globally warmed world. They help us to do things like regional, seasonal, and rainfall prediction in the future. And the point that I want to finish on is one that Ros mentioned as well, in that th this sort of work is helping to put us in control. And I think that's a positive message to, f to, to, um, to leave you with, that um, often it, when you look at the TV or read the papers, climate change is painted as a scenario of complete doom and despair. And we're going into this world that none of us wants to go into, and we've got no options um, but to do so. In actual fact, I think there's a lot of hope about climate change. It is happening, it is real, but there are things that we can do about it. We can predict what will happen and, and um, prepare for those changes. We know what the consequences of our actions now are in terms of what it'll do to the future. And as Roz talked about in her talk, there may even be sensible things we can do to try and reverse that climate change. So there are lots of ways in which we potentially are in control of climate, control of how we deal with it, the question now really is what are we going to do with that control? How is society going to exercise it? And that's something, of course, that we all play an active role in.